Okay. We're talking about encouragement after all that. We're going to talk about encouragement. Uh, we started a series several weeks ago on the issue of encouragement. And we looked at a definition several Sunday nights ago, uh, a working definition of encouragement. It's taking that word, making it real simple. The word "n" is into. The word meant at the very end is a state or a condition of. And the center word is courage. To put into a state of courage. That is what the word is all about. We are illustrating that for several weeks, as we've already done a couple. We're going to do some more illustrations from the Old Testament, how this word was used. How an individual was used, or a group of individuals was used, to put others into a state of courage. Now, in the arena that we're talking about, the the courage that I'm speaking of is to live or act according to what God would have them to do. And in almost every single situation, there is opposition here. It's a challenging thing. And that's generally when we need courage, right? To be put into a state of courage. Now, as we work our way through this, we can see different arenas that this word is used. Like a couple weeks ago, we talked about the situation where Moses was about to die and Joshua was the new leader. And Joshua was, uh, uh, Moses was told by Josh, or by the Lord, to put Joshua into a state of courage. And he needed that. That was an enormous transition. And we studied that together. Uh, last week, we found that uh, Daniel, in his life, had a particular ministry of putting pagans into a state of courage. Uh, he not only had a vast ministry during the days of Nebuchadnezzar, but also a particular story with Darius, the king of Media, and the story of the lion's den and all that we talked about last week. That was somewhat unusual because generally we like to keep encouragement just in the uh, family of Christians. <laughs> and yet in that case, He had a particular ministry, and matter of fact, to add to it, what we saw specifically, an angel was given that role of encouraging a pagan king, Darius. As a result, the statement recorded in in the book of Daniel was quite a statement Darius made concerning the one true God. He was put into a state of courage. Now today we're going to look at another episode, and we're going to the book of Ezra. Ezra. Would you find that with me, please? Chapter number 6. Now, in case you're saying, where do I find Ezra? If you open up Old Testament and it's Psalms, you have just passed it. So start backing up toward the front of your book. Not very far. Nehemiah is just after Ezra, for example. If you find Esther, you've gone a little bit too far yet. Um, If you end up in Chronicles, you've gone too far. So it's after 2 Chronicles and before the book of Nehemiah. And if that doesn't help you, look at your index in the front of your Bible. And then you'll find the book of Ezra. Here's the thing about Ezra. It's a book so often neglected. And yet, I find it's a powerful display of what godly leadership looks like 
and the difference it makes. I think it's well worth our time. We're going to spend time in the book of Ezra today, and we're going especially into chapter 6. And find our verse, verse number 22. This is where the word encouragement is inserted into our study. It says, just, I'm just going to read it right out of its context, okay? And then I'm going to put the context all around it. It says, And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So you saw the word encourage. You might have in your translation a different word in that statement. But it says here, He turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Heavenly Father, again, as we submit ourselves to your word and your teaching, I pray that you might challenge our hearts. There's much we can learn here and much for us to do. And we come before you as just your dependent children, ask you to teach us and and use this, uh, this particular description of courage to challenge us, to shape us, to give us uh, a clear understanding of what you call us to do too. So thank you, Lord, for those folks who live through this day and for the testimony set before us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, do you find motivating people an easy thing to do? Maybe not. Motivating people in ministry There's a little tradition that goes on once in a while. We put something in the bulletin looking for volunteers. And or stay there until we give up. Sometimes. Depends on what it is, right? Depends on what it is. My very first uh, opportunity to serve as a pastor was a church in Alabama. They only had morning services. That was it. Morning services for the whole week. Now, I wasn't brought up that way. I, I wouldn't uh, claim my upbringing in church was anything like it ought to have been, but we knew that Sunday morning we were there, Sunday night we were there, Wednesday night we were there, so as they say, when the doors are open, we were going to be there. Um, so I was brought up that way, thinking, as I did, entering into church ministry, that that's the way it ought to be. And I enter into a church where there's only a morning service. No evening service, no Wednesday night service, no other things offered but Sunday morning. So I said, how about if we have a Wednesday night prayer meeting? No, was the answer. Really? No. I said, how about we have a Sunday night service? I put it in the bulletin, I planned it, the whole thing. Nobody showed up. And I'm literal. Nobody showed up. Nobody. I said, wow. How do you motivate people to come out for that? For three years I worked on that. Trying to figure out how do you solve such a thing like that because it was my heart that we have something more than just Sunday morning. So I worked on a, a Bible study program. I called it Cover to Cover, which was a study from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. And I offered it to them. And a few started to attend on Sunday night. 
mostly curiosity, what is this, you know, it sounded new, it sounded different, and, and they got excited, and a few more started to attend, and we started setting up tables, and before you know it, we were setting up tables every week to add to the crowd that was starting to come on Sunday night. And that was kind of fun. That was, as a matter of fact, a lot of fun, and it made me feel good that there was a response. But it's hard to change what has become routine. You ever noticed? It's hard to change routine. Now, the church I was telling you about had a routine. They were called the pastor's graveyard. Literally, they were known by that title, the pastor's graveyard. They might as well have put painted it on the sign for all, you know, everyone in town knew that. And uh, their routine was every two years, get rid of their pastor whether he needed it or not. That's kind of a great way to, to face a new ministry. Well, that wasn't easy. As a matter of fact, making decisions wasn't easy. I, I went with the mentality on two levels. One, I was going to make it easier for the next guy. And two, I could outlive them. <laughs> I was young and they were old, and I figured, well, maybe that was to my advantage too. But those were my two mentalities that I went through this. But uh, what encouraged me greatly was in the fourth year, the fourth year with those folks at the end of the service, one of the ladies, two of the ladies came up to me and said, we don't know what you are, but we want to be that. You know what that does to a pastor's heart? That was so refreshing. So refreshing. I want to take you to Ezra's day. Matter of fact, the episode we're about to read here in chapter 6 happened before Ezra was on the scene. There were several uh, returns to the land. I'll give you the, the big picture first. If you go through the Old Testament, the majority of that, if you go from, uh, say, the book of Exodus, uh, when they left Egypt, to the time when the book of Joshua was written and they entered the promised land, as we use that phrase, that's the land of Israel, they entered into the promised land, they established themselves as, as a nation, it wasn't long before they had a king who ruled over them, and most of the Old Testament history you're familiar with are anywhere from King David to King Solomon. Uh, you've got all kinds of other kings in there. Some you can't even pronounce their names, but they're all there. And you'll see that in the book of First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. And you say, wow, there's a lot of activity here. Well, the point is that with all those kings that came through, you also have a lot of prophets who came through, and the reality was that the people would not follow the law of the Lord. And the Lord had told them, way back in Deuteronomy, when the law was given, that if you do not obey me, I will bring these things upon you, which included famines, included droughts, included all kinds of pestilence of different kinds, and eventually the biggie one was, I'll take you out of this land. And he did do that. He took them into the land of Babylon to be uh, slaves of, of the Babylonians for 70 years. God had warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them, and they would not listen. That brings us into the stories of men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other men who, who lived in, in Babylon in a time when, when it was difficult to be an Israelite, living in the land of Babylon. But at the end of the 70 years, God said, well, we're going to send you back. 
He started to use the kings of Persia, like Cyrus, for example, to issue proclamations to send the Jews back. He gave them that free pass. Go home. When you go home, build a temple. He kind of liked his name on things, by the way. He did that to everybody. Go build a temple. But he said, go build a temple to your God, and here are the things that Nebuchadnezzar took. Take them with you. These are the goblets and the various things that they used in temple worship. Take them all back with you. Build that temple again and worship the Lord your God. And his whole concept was, you're like me then, as your ruler, and things will go well for us. So there was that invitation to go back. Now picture this. If you had been part of that group that left Babylon... I mean, left for Babylon from Israel, you're now somewhere around 86 years old. Alright? Most people at 86 aren't thinking about moving, are they? If you were not part of that group, you are significantly younger than that, you have grown up in Babylon, Babylon is all you've ever known, and how likely are you to say, sure, I'll go back to Israel, when you've never been there? If Babylon's been your home, and you dress like a Babylonian, and you speak like a Babylonian, and you worship like a Babylonian, how likely are you to go back? You're not. There were small groups that went back when given that invitation to go. See, the problem addressed even in Scripture was that they were content to live in Babylon. There are houses there. Their kids were in the public school system or whatever. They were, they were content in Babylon. They did not want to go back. Is that a problem? Try motivating that group. Add to it this. To go back means they also have to start practicing the law of Moses. And they did not know the law of Moses. They were not taught the law of Moses. After all, you don't do the law of Moses in Babylon, according to most people. Oh, Daniel did. Handfuls did, but the majority didn't. And that's very evident, because when Ezra came, they were so ignorant of the law, he had to teach them what the law said and how to live it. So, you have to go back and reestablish the entire practice of keeping the law. And as to this, the fact that they were to build a temple. They were to rebuild a temple that's been destroyed by the Babylonians. They had to invest their time in building the temple to God. That's a huge task. Don't minimize that in your thinking. Enormous task to do. Now picture this. Say that you're not used to worshiping the Lord God. You've gotten used to the Babylonian way of worship. How likely are you to say, yes, let's go build a temple? There's another challenge. Add to it this while you're at it. There have been no priests or Levites operating for 70 years. And we need them, if we're going to build a temple, don't we? To be doing their work in priestly things and sacrificial things. And so you have to not only gather them together and know who they are, but you have to train them to do the work, and hopefully they're motivated to do it. Does it sound pretty big now? 
It was a huge thing. It's not easy. And you know what? What overlaid all of this was apathy. An apathy for the things of the Lord. I want to add one more thing that makes it hard. For those who say, okay, I'll do it. I'll go back to that land, though I've never seen it. I'll follow that law, though I've never heard it. I will build that temple, though I've never worshipped this God. I will serve in the roles that God has designed for me to serve. But what do you do when opposition stands up against you? What do you do? Now I set the table. You ready? Alright, let's look at how it works. This is a picture of the book of Ezra, chapter 4. That's back there. Here's, here's the, the way it starts. They all come, those who were willing. The first group, they come charging into the promised land. They head right for Jerusalem. They start to build that temple. They get out their tools. They start to clean up. They start to drag things in. They start to do it. They begin the work, and it wasn't long before they say, Hey, this is too much to do. They saw the size of the project. Too much to do. You know, they started this project before they built their own houses. They started this project before they had gone out and tilled their own fields. And all of a sudden they're thinking, hey, where are we going to get our food? Where are we going to sleep tonight? Where's our, our own houses? Where's our own food? And so, one by one, you could almost picture them saying, hey, I'll be back when I've built my house. I'll be back when my family's secure. I'll be back when my field is planted. I'll be back when it's harvested. I'll be back after I plow it. I'll be back after I plant it. I'll be back after I harvest it. You know what the seasons start to do? They start to go on and on and on. And when are they going to come back? Not when you start routine. There's never a good time, is there? So they quit. Temple had started, they quit. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. It starts in the first five verses to show you what word pops out your notice. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exiles were building the temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, the head of the father's households, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's household of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, for we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, Another thing to add to this thing. They were, they were into the project a little bit. They decided to quit. They decided, no, let's start this up again. And they started to build it. Now, there were people living in their land. The last 70 years, it was that way. It was one of the interesting techniques of the Assyrians. When they take people out of the land, they put people in the land. And that's a great way to mess up anybody's military. It's just start shuffling people all over the board. That's what they did. So these people who had lived in this land for 70 years started to call it home. That makes sense. They were what we call 
Samaritans. Part two, part Gentile. They weren't exactly where they ought to be in their worship either. They didn't quite understand things. They set up a few temples here and there and such. And they kind of figured that what they were worshiping was okay. Especially that the Jews were back. Let's build with you. And, and the, uh, the leadership, as you can clearly see, kept to their, their point and said, No, we are not like you. We came to worship only the true God of Israel. And we're building his temple. We will not join with you. See, there was, there was that temptation to compromise. Theological point. I mean, what's the difference? We're building a temple, right? No, these guys stuck to it. I'm, I'm proud of them. They said, no, we can't build with you. And so this is what happened. Verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They hired opposition. They brought in to discourage them. The results, if you jump over to verse 24, you'll see it. Verse 24, same chapter. Then the work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It worked. Discouraged them. You see that word? It's strong, isn't it? They came in and discouraged them and frightened them. And the work stopped. Now, several years go by and God says, well, I'm going to send some prophets. One's named Haggai. You've heard that name before? You had to memorize it if you memorized Old Testament books. You have no idea who that man was, perhaps. But Haggai was sent. Zechariah was sent, too. Haggai was an older man. I like to picture him as rather stern. Read his letter, you'll see. He's pretty powerful. He's the kind of guy who walks up and say, Build it! Alright? That was his approach. His whole letter is like that. If you read it with that voice, you got the tone. Build it! Alright? If you read Zechariah... He's more like the guy who went out and, and built a baseball field out in the middle of a cornfield. He says, if you build it, the Lord will come. You read his whole letter. That's his whole thing. Oh, I can't wait for the Lord to come. He can't come without the temple. Build the temple. He can come. Now, that's a slight commentary modification, of course. But it's just a basic idea. You've got young Zechariah, all full of fire, wanting to see you go up. Old Haggai saying, build it. And these two got put together and they started to encourage the people. Chapter 5. When the, when the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophet to the Jews, who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatio, and Jeshua, the son of uh, Jazadak, arose, and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, as the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Then he said, okay, let's do it. Now we've got some support and encouragement. Haggai is here, Zechariah is here, Zerubbabel is here, Joshua is the high priest. Everything's all in place. Verse 3. At that time, Satanai. Now, I don't know if you want to pronounce that different or not. If you do, that's just fine with me. I could murder any name in this book. All right? 
Sometimes I even make them up as I go. But Tess and I, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shafar Baz and I, and their colleagues, came to them and spoke to them thus. Who issued you a decree to rebuild the temple and to finish the structure? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eyes of, the God, of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until the report could come to Darius and then be, written, be a written reply in return concerning it. Here's something that they take the first step of courage. Again, opposition came, said, who gave you the right to do this? They said, well, if you want to find out, send a message to the king. Until then, we're going to keep going. So a message was sent to Darius. Now, last week I told you there were three Dariuses. First one was in the days of Daniel. This is Darius number two. All right? A different Darius is now on the scene here. He is uh, uh, the one that they said, send him a note. See what he thinks. So a, sent, a letter was sent here. Verse number 6. This was a copy of the letter, which Tatsunai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and all these other guys, they sent to this king. All right. They reported to him simply this. Uh, these guys are out here building this temple, and we don't think it's right. Matter of fact, we, we somewhat believe that they're, uh, they're planning to plot against you, old king. You know how that works with kings. Well, I, I think it's very suspect, and I, I think that maybe uh, you need to check this, because I'm very sure that these Israelites are wrong, and they're going against your authority, and they're going against your people, and they're rebuilding this thing, and I think you better know, good king. So search for it. Here's what's interesting. Go to chapter number 6. Go to chapter 6. King Darius got the note. He saw it perhaps as a threat to his kingdom, but certainly he, he was a, a wise man. And it says in chapter 6, King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. It goes on to say, in Ekbatana, in the fortress, which was in the province of Media, a scroll was found. And there was written in it as follows. Memorandum. Ah, a yellow sticky note. <laughs> How likely are you going to find this thing in all the treasures and all the writings of all the libraries out there? They found it in this building in the middle of a scroll somewhere. Memorandum. What's it say? In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple and the place where sacrifices are offered be rebuilt. And let its foundation be retained, its height being 60 cubits, its width 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stone and one layer of timbers. Does it sound like he got pretty specific? And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Let the gold and the silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple of Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple of Jerusalem, and you shall put them there in the house of God. Right? So there's the answer. Was it written down? Yes. Now watch this. I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts you'll find in Scripture. Now therefore, the king's writing, 
Tetanite, governor of the province beyond the river, Shelf Barthanite, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Does that sound authoritative to you? Leave this work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its side. Moreover, he's not done. I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders in Jerusalem, in Judah, in rebuilding the house of God. The full cost is to be paid to those people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the providence beyond the river, and that without delay. What he just told them? You pay for it. You pay for it. And whatever they need. If they need young bulls, they need rams, they need lambs, they need burnt offerings to their God, they need wheat, they need salt, they need wine, they need anointing oil, whatever the priest requests, give it to them without delay. So they can offer up acceptable sacrifices to God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So I issue this decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, he shall be impaled on it, his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. His last words is at the very end of verse 12. I, Darius, Darius, have issued this decree, let it be carried out with all diligence. And these guys were jumping over each other to get it done. That's serious, isn't it? Don't you just love that? You say, ooh, yes, one for the good guys. We get excited when we read things like that. By the way, chapter 13, or verse 13, and I did what he was told, and it says in verse 14, the elders of the Jews were successful in building. Verse 15, the temple was completed the third day of the month of Adar, the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And then they offered up the celebration of dedication in verse 16, 17, and 18. 18, they appointed priests for the division and Levites, as they were told to do. Verse 19, they observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. Verse 21, the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land joined them. You see good things happening. Now we bring back our verse. Verse 22. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven, seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had, watch these words, this is great, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. He said, but I thought he was a Persian king. He is, but he's ruling over Assyria, by the way. So they just use that phrase. It's not a big deal, really. But notice, and did you hear it? The king encouraged them. You know, this doesn't sound like Daniel's story anymore, does it? Generally, it's the believer that's supposed to encourage the other people. Who's doing the encouragement? A pagan king. A pagan king encouraged them to do the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, how many times is that brought up in a boardroom? we got a great strategy to encourage people in the church. Let's get pagan people to come in here and encourage us. You ever hear it? 
No. That's not the strategy we think of in Christian circles, is it? Said, no, that's unusual. But I want to ask you this. Serious, serious question here. Do we really believe that the God that we worship even controls the actions of unbelievers? Yeah? Psalm 22, I mean Proverbs 22. I was reading this this morning. No, Proverbs 21, sorry, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water. In the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He turns it wherever he wishes. Often I know ministry can get bogged down by discouragement. Sometimes we produce that on our own. Out of ignorance. Lack of obedience. We're not following leadership. We, we, we've got a whole host of things out there that when one of them kicks in, the, the rest usually kick in. And before you know it, there's discouragement and the work stops. Sometimes it's outside influences that can stop us in ministry. They can say, no, you can't do that, you can't do that. And we, we sometimes feel tower under fear. We'll be concerned whether or not, you know, their world's opinion of us would be negative, and we don't want that. And at times it limits our, our ministry. Sometimes it's opposition. Sometimes it's our own work. Sometimes we look at this world and we say, you know, Lord, if you only change our leadership in our land, if you change us, this person, or if you change that person, boy, ministry will get so much easier. Change these laws, Lord, and we'll be okay. Do this, and we'll be fine. We count on the movements of our land to give us freedom to serve. You ever notice it? Sometimes we're like that. Now, you know what I like to think of is this. Sometimes we have leaders over us that uh, go counter to what our desires would be in ministry. Counter to what we believe. What's right. What's wrong. Those leaders' hearts are in the hands of the Lord to move them however He chooses. That's what Scripture says. And it's interesting at times when we think that's our biggest opposition that God would turn it into our biggest encouragement. And we all stand back and say, wow, where did that come from? Where did that come from? It's amazing what God can do with history. Don't ever take him out of the equation. If it's his work, if it's his ministry, does he not provide for it? Does he not lead us into it? He says, follow me, and he only leads on the right path, folks. That's the only path he does lead on. Is there opposition at times? Yes. Is there discouragement at times? Yes. Sometimes we just sit around and let the work stop. You know what? Discouragement sounds so easily the opposite of encouragement, doesn't it? I mean, just the nature of the words. But take them down to the root cause. 
If encouragement is courage, discouragement is lack of courage. Lack of courage. We sometimes strategize for motivation. We seek taking people to help us get our projects done, maybe. The Lord can work through them, no doubt. But will he work through us? We submit ourselves to him. The Lord and his toolbox is incredible. He can use those things. But when I get down to it, I ask myself personally, am I usable? Am I usable? Am I ready to follow the Lord regardless of what the opposition might be? Am I ready to follow the Lord in obedience to His law? Am I willing to, to even obey the Lord in the face of opposition? It's kind of interesting how so many, so many times it's recorded in Scripture when the person decides, I'll follow the Lord no matter what, the Lord says, now watch what I do with this Tayyum King to make your path safe. Because he does that kind of thing. Encouragement comes from unusual sources of time, doesn't it? When it all comes down to it, folks, follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. You won't be disappointed. Follow the Lord. You look at that ministry, don't quit. Follow the Lord. Is it hard? Yes. Follow the Lord. He will encourage you. He will encourage you. Heavenly Father, you know our needs as we stand before you today as a congregation, as individuals. You look at the lives of those in the days of Ezra and the opposition they faced and yet the project was done and a place of worship was established that your name might be proclaimed among them. Lord, I don't know what opposition might lie in the future. I've got a hunch I look at the newspapers and I see the trend of our land, I have a hunch. But Lord, in the midst of all this, we will follow you. We will follow you. And Lord, if you might use the pagan leadership of our land, you might use unusual sources to encourage us along the way, we acknowledge that it's you at work. And how you can turn things so beautifully, so wonderfully to your honor and glory. Lord, we thank you for that. Keep our eyes on you, I pray. Help us set them on you. Walk in your way to do your work with a heart resolved to see it completed to the glory of our God. Lord, bless this fellowship. Use us, Lord, as you see fit. To be a light in this community, to this land, to be in your path, to walk together in the ways of our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.